Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. Joined as always, and by my co-host Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? It's been a while. I know. Well, I mean, to our audience, I don't know that it'd be a while, but for us, it just—it feels like it's been a long time. And I think that it was necessary so that we could be prepared for the awesomeness that we just witnessed over the last ninety minutes, um, which felt like forty. But. Um, <laughs> We're here. This is part one of a, you know, we wrapped up our four-part political arc. Uh, we had a nice little reprieve there with um, Modern Times, and here we're starting a, a two-part little mini-series, so to speak. Uh, we're doing 48 hours and another 48 hours, but we're going kind of in a backwards order here. We're, we're starting with the, the better of the two. Uh, we're getting the good out of the way first, so to speak. Um, I think I think that it works because if we started with the bad one, then why? I think that would be harder for us to watch a sequel. The if return we would have no like value, like, right? But here we're coming in like we start with the good stuff, so that now we want to see like, well, how how could such gold come from a it bad movie? It would have been movie? like if a Star Wars started with Episode Two, we would have had much more incentive to come back. Yes, exactly. So um, for Episode Twenty, when we did Scream Four for the first time in our little contrarian history, we were joined by a third contrarian. Uh, our friend Eddie, and now for this little two-part series, we uh, turn things over to resident Walter Hill expert. We have our friend Brandon Curtis joining us. Uh, Curtis, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excellent. We Glad have we have it. a little like we're growing our stable of experts. So we had Eddie as the scream expert, uh, Corey as the Rob Zombie expert, and now we have a Walter Hill expert. That's right. Um, oh, if it ever gets to that point, don't forget we also have a Last Boy Scout expert. Yeah. Well, will it get to that point? I don't think so. <laughs> So, yeah, like I said, uh, we're starting here with another 48 Hours, directed by Walter Hill. Obviously, the sequel to the very famous 48 Hours, um, starring Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte. Um, you know, kind of wrote the book on the buddy cop genre. Julio, do you have some reviews to start us off with? Yes, I do. So, as much as we loved it, uh, the public, uh, the reviewers in general, they, they didn't. 
And we start with uh, Scott Weinberg from eFilmCritic.com who says, Color by number sequel that copies the action while forgetting the comedy. Then you have Richard Luck from Film 4 who says, Not a career high for anyone involved. Rarely has 90-odd minutes felt more like 48 hours. Peter Rayner from Los Angeles Times says, Walter Hill, who also directed the first film, surely recognizes the hollowness of what he's doing here. He also hasn't had a hit since 48 hours, which no doubt explains why he's once again tilling these charred fields. And then our friend Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times says, You know how sometimes in a dream you'll see these familiar faces and scenes floating in and out of focus, but you're not sure how they connect? Another 48 Hours is a movie that feels the same way. Finally, Gregory Weinkoff from New Times says, Who the hell cares? Take back the first 48. No. Well, here, like, let's let's put all the cards on the table. I haven't seen the first 48 Hours. Alex hasn't seen the first 48 Hours. But our resident expert has seen 48 Hours probably 48 times. <laughs> the same way Alex and I hadn't seen another 48 Hours until just now. Mm-hmm. We came in completely cold into this franchise other than knowing that it had Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte mm-hmm. in it. Uh, whereas Brandon has seen it three times as a you know today, so uh, did it hold up? Um, it actually surpassed my expectations. I, I really enjoyed it a great deal. Had I, had a few hearty laughs. I, I can see how this is a movie that just gets better and better as 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 you watch it more and more because it's just it has those timeless elements. Mm-hmm. You know, you have black and white just and and from then on just all this awesomeness grows. Uh but uh I don't know if you want to get us started on the plot. I was going to say, you know, it, we may have come in cold, but we start off hot. We're in the middle of the <laughs> desert. Uh lone desolate dusty bar out in the middle of nowhere to so to speak. Uh and not so to speak, but quite literally. And you know, there's a bald gentleman there, real scraggly looking. There's the bartender. We get two bikers that come up. Uh, it's made clear right away that their goal, they're given a big sack of cash to kill Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Um, we get a picture shown. You know, we may have not been there for the first 48 hours, but uh, we, we can jump right in. We know, you know, we can read pictures here. We know what's going on. I made it my mission through this movie to watch it as if I didn't know that there was a movie before, mm-hmm. just to see if it works, because I think that's a true test of a sequel. Will it work on its own? And uh, and it absolutely does because you have the advantage of of having Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte there who are like movie stars. So mm-hmm. they come in with you don't need a previous movie. They come in with their own baggage as stars. So when they pull Eddie Murphy's picture, you're like, of course, like you know, it's Eddie Murphy. I'm sure he pissed off someone and somebody wants to kill him. So it makes sense. You don't need the previous movie. I don't need to know what happened before then. And in some ways, that actually benefits the film. You know, just knowing that someone's after him. You know, it's kind of like um, watching the Avengers without having seen Thor. You don't have to deal with the headache of them just not explaining how Thor comes back to Earth. It just happens. It just happens. It's like, why do they want to come? It just happens. Just go with it. Yeah, you don't have to. Just roll with it. Um, so, you know, despite there not being anything else around this bar, these uh, cops show up and to a really uncertain fate, they're just kind of lowly town cops and they're blown away by these bikers. Yeah, I think it, it, it sets up uh, one of the running themes throughout the movie uh, that I really appreciated, which was just uh, uh, kind of like, you know, you have the good cops and you have the bad cops and you have the cops that are like kind of in the middle, which I think that that's something that we can relate to like in this day and age. Uh, the middle like, class. Yeah, the cops that, you know, it's like they're doing good, but maybe they're also doing a little bit of racial profiling on the way or in this case, like some bike profiling. I mean, the only reason they stop at this bar is because they see some, some bikes parked outside. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's not like... They're on duty. They're not stopping there for a drink or something. They come in to just investigate the bikes, uh, which 
and ends up, you know, in their demise. Yeah. They try to run the plates, and as soon as they find out that, you know, these guys are up to no good, um, their lives have ended up no good. It, it's a solid, powerful opener that tells you, uh, it, it also, it gives you like this sense of, uh, that you don't get in action movies these days. Uh, it's just like those guys, they don't hesitate for, you know, before shooting. There's no like snappy dialogue or anything. Like as soon as they just put their hands on the gun and then they're shooting, it's, uh, it was refreshing to see a movie that was not afraid of killing people right away. We then see Nick Nolte on a motocross track, which is probably the greatest PlayStation 1 game that was never created, was Nick <laughs> Nolte's motocross. Um, not really clear what he's doing. He sees a Weasley black man who looks like a lawyer or something. Once uh, again, <laughs> profiling. Yes, exactly. All he does, he's just following this black guy in a trench coat. And you know, later, we come to find out that he's believed to be an associate of the Iceman. No, not Chuck Liddell, but this notorious uh drug lord of the bay central area um he gives a big satchel of cash to this mechanic and nick nolte you know pulls his gun and says freeze um nick nolte officer jack cates of course and just unloads fire on him and pretty much just guns down this guy uh perceived to be in cold blood but the guy pulled a gun on him well you're being quite literal with the he unloads fire on him because he shoots at him near the gas tank which springs a leak, and then the second bullet just sends it up in flames, and everybody just gets burned to a crisp. It, yeah, it, it's a. Uh, uh, this is our one of our heroes, you know, half of our of our protagonist duo, and uh, he's again. I was coming in cold. I don't. I haven't. I don't know what he did in the first forty eight hours, but in these forty eight hours, like he starts with a bang and. You don't need much to have Nick Nolte convey the idea that this is a cop that's, you know, a loose cannon. Just cast Nick Nolte and that's all you need. But just to, like, underline that idea, he, just like the bad guys in the previous scene, he had absolutely no problems pulling his gun and shooting like a maniac. As I mean, did we really see a gun? I think, you know, it's meant to believe that we, the audience, see that this guy pulls a, a gun on Officer Jack Cates. Um I want to see those records. I want, I want, I want to see those pictures because they don't find the, the gun in the crime scene later yeah. on. And it never really – they don't really explain it. I mean I guess you could like assume that somebody took care of the gun yeah. while it, there were like 50, tops, 50 other cops looking. But During the scrounging of the charred remains, uh, Officer Cates comes across a charred picture of Eddie Murphy, uh, Reggie Hammond, uh, amongst some burnt dollar bills. And, you know – much like you and I, Julio, who have never seen this movie, he realizes what we, we, we do, and that's, you know, Reggie's in trouble, and I, I got to go find him. And we find, you know, Reggie's playing a basketball game by himself somewhere in an abandoned warehouse. He, I, I presume that the cops have, or that Reggie has informed, not Reggie, Jack, has informed, uh, has informed them that he's coming to talk to Reggie, so they take him somewhere safe. And then, you know, he's like, oh, well, I guess... I guess he's no high priority because he's, you know, not wearing handcuffs and he's playing basketball. But I assume he's there because of Nolte's warning. That, that's a safe bet because he is surrounded. It's kind of like uh, Magneto in his little glass chamber in the X-Men films. Uh, he's shooting in baskets and they come in and kind of just catch up on, you know, and we, the audience who haven't seen the first one, is able to just right away catch up, you know. Uh, Kate's told him he would help him out. He's going to go to jail, but um, Reggie has all this money stored away that Kate's is going to keep safe for him. Uh, but Kate's goes back on the deal and says, you know, you need to help me find this ice man or I ain't giving you shit. I mean, the, the movie does a pretty good job of just filling us in and, and 
the fact that this these characters have a history, but then it also defies expectations for people that you know haven't seen the previous one. They're coming in cold because I really I was not expecting uh, Eddie Murphy to be. I mean, I expect him to be funny. I was like, he's gotta be a sassy comedian that's here to like play opposite Nick Nolte. But I, but he's also pretty brutal. He once uh, Nick Nolte goes back on their deal, he just like sh- like hits him with the ba- uh, basketball and then punches him repeatedly while the other cops look because Nick Nolte is such an asshole that <laughs> nobody will interfere. Oh, a story beat I think we missed is uh, Jack's attempted assassination uh, in the diner. No, we're coming up on that. Oh, okay. You've I'm seen sorry. this movie three times. <laughs> so these bikers we see at the beginning, which I think we figured out were the two bikers were... Taylor Kish's dad, and who do we figure out the other one was? There's, there's different. It's like an amalgamation of like different actors, which led to me realizing that really so many careers are just made or broken by by just whether your movie, the, the movie where you had a small part, becomes a hit. You know, because that guy, like one of those guys, that was like that generation's Paul Giamatti, and it's just like another forty eight hours was a flop, so his career didn't take oh, off. The bald guy was your pseudo Lance Henriksen. Yeah, it's like, but see, like, you look at him from one, you know, it's Lance Hedrickson from another angle. He's like Paul Giamatti and then, you know, Taylor Kish. And I told you there was one guy that was like David Boreanaz mixed with uh, Jason Ritter. So it, you know, are you talking about the guy with the teardrop tattoo? The pretty one. Oh, okay. <laughs> the the guy with like the the black and... I mean, like, they're all pretty, but... <laughs> and you yeah. think about, you know, the type of thing, if this movie had been a success, you know... You look at Inglorious Bastards and where Michael Fassbender is now. Those guys could be. You know, they would have the career. They could that be other, at the level of Pierce Brosnan now. But sometimes this was know, not just, their lawnmower man. Nope. It, it, it's it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of revealing, and it shows that Walter Hill had the best intentions with this movie. You know, he he had like he was a grooming for the next generation. Exactly. He's like when you have the luxury of of having Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte already attached to the to, to your movie, then you can just you know roll the dice and, and start building for the next generation so basically at this point in the film it's you know this mysterious ice man is in cahoots with these bikers uh to do, you know get this taken care of and for whatever reason or another they want kate's dead they want reggie dead um but you know for jack kate things have gone from bad to worse as there's been the preliminary hearing about his shooting and you know there's insufficient evidence that it was in self-defense so he's set to go on trial for manslaughter potentially lose his badge all that gobbledygook um, Reggie's out. Reggie's out of the pen. Um, you know, Eddie Murphy, you watch things like this, and it's disappointing what he became because there's such great flashes of brilliance. This is a pretty fantastic scene of he gets his uh, possessions returned to him from when he originally went to jail, and he immediately says, hey, man, where, where's my James Brown tape? <laughs> and he starts digging through his envelope, and it's right there. He's like, oh, man, everyone trying to keep me and James in prison. <laughs> Yeah, he's. Uh, I like him. See, and now he is bringing the comedy, which is what I expected originally. And that's that's good because, especially back then. I mean, now we've, we've we've you know maybe grown to like more about you know actors that do more than one thing. But in that case, you would expect you know they cast a comedian, they want him to be funny. And uh, here it, it's just like Murphy is a perfect example of somebody who didn't allow himself to be typecast. He's like, I'm not here just to be funny. I'm here to be funny and also like handle myself in the action scenes. Uh, it's it's good to see a, a, an actor and a character that multitasks. It's not just confined to a role. Like, oh, this gotta be the clown while Nolte takes care of business. Uh, there's there's a lot of action for Murphy here, but he also he gives us what we expect, which is you know him being funny. Now I may have misspoke, Curtis. 
Now, does the Iceman want Kate's dead, or is it just Reggie at this point? Is it the bikers are the ones that want Kate's dead, correct? Yeah, I think it's the, the bikers are the one that wants Kate that want Kate's dead because they're like they he killed his brother. Yeah, they killed his brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll we'll meet you know next time. Yeah, and. Uh, Reggie is wanted dead by the Iceman, we eventually find out, because he's the only person that's ever seen him. And fortunately, he does get to identify him in the end by saying, Hey, that's the Iceman! <laughs> as, as you would hope. Yeah. The identity of the Iceman is kind of like one of the, what you would call the MacGuffin in the movie. The thing that keeps everything rolling and, and pushes the action. But really, this is, more, this is a movie that's more interested in exploring what I would imagine made the first one work... Uh, or what made the first one so popular, which is the interaction between Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy, which here, not knowing their previous history, but just taking it in as as, as a new viewer, it's very much that of an abusive ex-boyfriend and the girl that just can't do the right thing and and leave him. Because Nolte is just like a bully. He comes in and and tell some baby I've changed and I'll give you your money this time. And, uh, and then like, you know, they, they both get violent he with each other. He holds the promise of a greater future over his head. Right. And it's, it's verbally abusive, physically abusive. And yet Murphy can't seem to, to avoid just keeping, you know, going with him. Even when the, all he should do is really like just leave town. Nick Nolte, uh, Jack Cates after, you know, unsuccessfully swindling uh, Reggie to get in his car because Reggie's still defiant. Uh, pulls over to a diner in here, and this is uh, really, I believe, one of your favorite scenes in the film, Curtis. Uh, it, it, what is it that you love? Quiet he's, diner scenes defined <laughs> by violence. Yeah, yeah. He's he's just going through the mug book trying to make a composite sketch of uh, the aforementioned uh, Weasley intermediary. He's just going through that, and these uh, the bikers roll up behind him, and they tap on the glass, and he turns and he looks, and they just shoot him six times. I mean, you know, lucky for us, spoiler alert, he's wearing a bulletproof vest. Right, but, but you don't know that. We don't know that in the moment. We we think right here this is like a scream situation in which the biggest profiled actor is killed off right away. I, I raised an eyebrow. I'm like, really? Because <laughs> there's, I mean, the only thing I could think of was the movie is about to jump to like two years later when he is recovered from the from this near-death experience. And he uses a computer to speak for him. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I really, you know, I had flashbacks to uh, one of our favorite movies that we've done, Smoking Aces. This was kind of like the Tremor Brothers. I know. I'm like, who's going to come in and like replace this guy? It's, uh, you know, we thought it was Nolte and, and Murphy, but no, this is just, they were like the first course. Mm-hmm. And then we get, I don't know, uh, who who else was big at the time? I mean, uh, Hulk Hogan and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Nolte survives. He gets, mm-hmm. But they don't know that either, so they just shoot him and then they just, away. you know... Pump him full of lead, take off to the next stop, which is uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, Reggie's bus. And, you know, he's being transported to, I believe, San Francisco is what they said. They're taking him off. And, you know, just another classic comedy scene here of Eddie Murphy. And really, uh, credit to Walter Hill. The cinematography is in this really great. But it's pretty much dead silence. But you have Eddie Murphy with his Walkman playing his James Brown tapes, and he's singing along to it. Uh, just true, true comedic bliss at this point. That that's called just letting your talent free. Just you know, I doubt that that was written. You know, that was not on the script. That really feels like Walter Hill having the good sense to just let Eddie Murphy 
Dude. And also, you know, the, the bleed through here of uh, race running free because this is a free man now. The white bus driver is just clearly annoyed at the fact that he's free and able to sing his songs and things of that nature. So, you know, I think this is, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye in this particular. Oh. It's about a, a two minute segment here, but. Oh, don't forget about uh, prior to that when the bus is leaving the prison. He's he's just barking orders. He's like, I'm not on the state's time anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just he's lapping up freedom. He's in charge now. Telling that, you know, he behaves a certain way when he's there. But then once you pair him with Nick Nolte, it, it, no matter how he's how much he, he tries, he's still under his boot. Mm-hmm. You know, it has that relationship of what Nolte will just keep him down. The relationship of Jack Cates and Reggie Hammond is truly that of the song Stan by Eminem. Uh, it's, you know, someone who is... Uh, wants to be so badly with someone that they'll put up with anything to do so. Really? I mean, the first thing that he tells him is like, wow, I haven't seen you in like four years. Uh, so the bikers roll up on this bus. I believe they shoot the tire out, causing it to flip over multiple times. Uh, they do shoot the bus driver dead. and you know, But fortunately, the, his gun is uh, flung from his holster. Eddie Murphy gets a hold of it and is able to fend off and you know, protect himself until the other police arrive on the scene. Again, proving that he's not there just for the laughs, but he's here to like handle a gun and, and, and fight for himself. I, I really like that. As fate would have it, both uh, Cates and Hammond are sent to the same hospital to be checked up on. They meet up there. Not before Cates lies, though, about why he needs um, Hammond in custody. And, you know... Much like an abusive ex-boyfriend, you know, the interesting tale just makes up a bunch of lies about him to get other people on his side against him. It was it was really uncomfortable uh, watching this relationship play out. And it's just even worse made by the fact that that he's a cop. And that's why I was talking about like this being like really relevant even now. You know, it's just the movie doesn't hit you in the face with it, but it doesn't need it because... It, you know, Nolte's performance does everything uh, and the way he treats Murphy. But it's like, this guy's a cop and he goes around... Like, would you want him on the streets? Even though he's he's the good guy, he's not like a corrupt cop. He's I don't want just... Nick Nolte in general on the streets. <laughs> Even without his his badge, he's still scary. But but this is Nolte, like let's say at his prime, because now you know he's like now he's old, so maybe the intimidation factor has gone down a little bit. But but back then he's like a big guy, and he's he's mean and he's violent and he's and he has the law behind him. So when he tells Murphy. Oh well, they release you, but under my, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna take care of you. That's that's terrifying. But yeah, and he still he says, you know, I have your money, but you have to do X, Y, and Z to get it. Right. He's not a hundred percent monster. He's just, you know, he, he's just, just it's creepy. A very fascinating it, relationship. Yeah, but and I also like the fact that it, it's, uh, there is this subplot of you know his investigation. He's being investigated for shooting this guy and they can't find the gun. Obviously, he has a history of being a loose cannon. So it's the movie telling you it's set in this like very real universe where being a loose cannon cop that is an asshole has consequences and you're under investigation. You know, if he had been maybe he had been a little nicer, he wouldn't be (laughs) investigated by that. And he even said to himself, he's like, I agree that the cops should be investigated. I just don't think it should be by other cops. That's like a very interesting statement coming from a cop that pulls his gun out and shoots every five minutes in this movie. So he does, though, you know, like I said, he has the promise of uh, his cash over Reggie's head. But he also has been keeping his car, his Porsche, and uh, parked outside of his home. You know, he said, I kept your car in safekeeping. Now, was this something he agreed upon at the end of the first film, Curtis? Yes, because, uh, because Reggie was going back to prison. Yeah. So they do finally pull up uh, outside of 
Jack's old home, and then there is Reggie's Porsche, which is just you know covered in dust, dirt, bird poop, the whole nine yards. And of course, you know Eddie Murphy has a classic breakdown scene here. Uh, you know, never sparing on the comedy. As serious as things get, and as interesting as the the four lines of the story are, you know Eddie Murphy's always just bringing the comedic delivery. Yeah, I, I haven't had a Porsche in a while, but I, I, that's not how you treat a Porsche. You don't leave it outside. I agree with with Eddie Murphy on this one. Uh, Kate's gives him the the clicker, you know, say press press the blue button to unlock it. Here he presses it, the car blows up. So you know, it's it's clear that someone, presumably the Iceman. Um, what I love too about this is uh, people present, you know, all the other characters in this presented as this Iceman is some figment of uh, Jack Kate's imagination. I find that fascinating. Right, which again, if he wasn't such an asshole cop to begin with, maybe he would get more people to listen to him. But the fact that he's just He's he's a horrible person, so people automatically assume the worst. They assume that he shot that guy <laughs> without you know without cause, and they assume that he's just gone crazy and he's coming up with like this boogeyman. I could really see, in many ways, Jake Gyllenhaal taking inspiration from this performance for Prisoners. I think you know the kind of recluse, no one trusts some type cop, but you know he knows he's right type of thing. I, I see a lot of that in here. Following this, Jack Cates is officially suspended from, you know, his duty as a police officer. He has to turn in his gun, his badge, yada, yada, yada. Classic cop movie scene. It was just missing him, like, taking the clip out and then putting it on the table. Well, Walter Hill knows when to draw the line. Uh, This was kind of a point of some plot needed some explanation. You know, we were able to keep up with it pretty much. So, Curtis, at this point, Reggie explains to Jack that the reason the Iceman's after him is he stole some money from him. Now, was that from the previous film, or is this supposed to be? Uh, yes, that's uh, that's the money that's in the trunk, is uh, the money that he was trying to get from his old partners in the job um, in the last film. So, is the Iceman, the, is he the bad guy in the first 48 hours? Um, no, he's just, he's just a periphery character. Okay. Um, so, when you're watching the first 48 hours, you don't know that the Iceman is there. But if you were to watch 48 hours after watching another 48 hours, like we will do next, will we be able to see the Iceman? Like, like the, we'll be able to like be like, oh, this was because of the Iceman. Or here's the thing: I've never watched them in reverse order like that to see if that would be the case, and I've also actually never watched the two films that close together. So that will actually be an interesting experiment for the both of us. I will say you're welcome ahead of time. <laughs> but since you know, since since they do have the red herring before they give the true reveal of who the Iceman is, uh, the the first character, Frank Cruz, he's not in the first film. So, so the person, it, I mean, it may not it may not be a thing that will, that crosses our minds at all. Right. So okay. it's kind of like when we watch the first forty eight hours, um, it'll be kind of like watching another Terrence Malick movie for the first time ever, realizing oh. These all suck. <laughs> I I take offense to that, sir. So as you do in these situations, high stressful situations, been suspended as a cop. Uh, your car is blown up in front of you. You want to go to the nightclub. You want to go where the where the action is. So uh, Jack and Reggie go to a, um, just a local nightclub. You know, to try to get some more information on this mysterious Ice Man. Uh, trying to follow up kind of on some of the leads they have. With these that's bikers. what cops do. <laughs> Um, I really like how the, this movie. I mean, Walter Hill. Obviously, I think I'm, I'm going to assume that you know, with 48 hours, he did the movie he wanted to do, and then he was like, "Well, now I have to do a sequel, so I need to do something else." He's he's too good a filmmaker to just 
crank out a sequel just because. So I think that he found the parameters that were expected from a sequel, and then he kind of played with them. So, like you said, you have to have the nightclub sequence. Well, what I really like about this film is, you know, uh, Walter Hill here, he made um, an episode of Saturday Night Live. It's several seven-minute segments that have no relation to one another, yet he somehow tied it into a story and made a film out of it. So it's better than the average Saturday Night Live episode exactly. because it actually tied it all together. The only thing this was missing was, you know, the um, the eleven fifty five skit wasn't the best one. Uh, well, you know, that's he, again he has to break the formula somehow. Yes. But, so but yeah. we, we kind of get the scene where uh, Eddie Murphy watches one of the bartenders there kind of steal some money from some guy, and then he swindles it out of him. And, you know, a lot of people would think this would go nowhere. And, you know, some people flat out think it did go nowhere, but But, it adds to uh, Reggie's character. Yeah, I think I wonder if just people were watching it as a sequel and that's why they didn't appreciate, uh, you know, how good it was because they were they wanted just uh, when you watch a sequel, you're expecting certain things because you've already you have, let's say, 90 minutes or two hours worth of these characters and, and stories and whatever in your mind. And you're not watching it fresh, but because we were watching it fresh, we were able to appreciate every little nuance because we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know any better. We don't know really his, uh, Eddie Murphy's character. So everything that he does, we're like, oh, this is new and this is interesting. And we'll just go with it. So he goes and... It's Donkey. It's <laughs> To me, he'll always be the guy from uh, Coming to America. Fair enough. Yeah. Prince, Prince whatever. Hakeem. <laughs> Prince Hakeem. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, stuff happens in the bar. Yeah, so in this like swank LA nightclub, after we get over this one scene of Eddie Murphy, then the vagrant, you know, bartender that steals money from this guy, um, there's a couple yokels there that I guess one of them. You were explaining this to me, Curtis. Kate's arrested for having relations with an underage girl. Is that correct? Yeah. And now this is not. Please tell. This is not a callback to the first movie. No, no, no it's not okay. a callback to the first. Okay. Movie. It's, just, it's just the guy who's. Being belligerent because he sees the cop who arrested him. Yeah, but see, I love that because it could have been, and and that's just Walter Hill like kind of putting something there, just showing you that yeah, these characters were alive mm-hmm. way before this movie started and way before the previous movie started. There's like they were doing stuff, and and it- we also at this point I, I failed to mention earlier we haven't commented on the brilliance, um, the blazer, the like uh, plaid blazer that Kate's was shot up in, he continues to wear. So he has the bullet he has holes. These bullet there. holes all over his jacket. It's genius. Well, yeah, because you have this this one of the gimmicks, which it honestly didn't feel like a gimmick until really close to the end when they mentioned it. But it's like, oh yeah, it's all happening within forty eight hours. Uh, and but you know they don't hit you. A movie these days, a movie we just put the timer right there so you know that it's all happening in you know just forty eight hours. But here, no, it just kind of happens, and and that's good. It's. It's very subtle, but it, it really makes for some interesting choices, like him having the bullet holes and just the fact that Eddie Murphy gets to say every now and then, I'm having a terrible day. <laughs> and, you know, unlike 127 hours, we weren't just, like, waiting for the end of this. We were just, like, hanging on every bated breath throughout this film. Yes. So these yokels jump Jack. You know, uh, this guy is pissed off because he arrested him in a previous life. So him and his cowboy-hatted, cladded friends are just beating him down. Where Eddie goes up to the bartender and is just like, do you have a gun? And she gives him a gun and he just starts firing it off willy-nilly at the ceiling. Uh, basically saves the day and they, in a moment of, you know, kind of uh, black triumph, the, one of the white guys says to him, you know, I don't think you have the guts. He just shoots his knee out. It's 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 uh, one of those fuck you moments. <laughs> I, 
I liked that. I mean, for one, one thing is just that Nolte comments on the fact that they're about to have a bar fight right before they get into the bar fight, which keeps in line with with Walter Hill just kind of like playing with the little conventions that are expected of, of the sequel. And then they get into the bar fight anyway. Mm-hmm. A, a movie these days would be like too clever to get into the actual bar fight. They make a comment and then you'd miss out on this awesome piece of action that is, mm-hmm. you know, seeing Nick Nolte getting pummeled by like four guys. He takes a beating before, and I think Reggie enjoyed some of that too, before he stepped in, he, he really lapped it up. But it's pretty well set up because he got shot like six times just a few hours ago. Mm-hmm. So even with the Kevlar, you would be, a normal person would be in the hospital for a couple of days. But Nolte knows that the movie's called Not 48 Hours, so he needs to like move it up. It's just... <laughs> I mean, even after this beating, of the essence. yeah, this beating, he just gets up from the floor and just shakes his head, and then it's on to the next location. Uh, but the other thing I really like is that they really they don't hammer you like, over the head with the fact that there's a white guy and a black guy. There are a few moments where it makes a difference, but then there's, for the most part, imagine that you could recast Daddy Murphy character with a white comedian, and then the movie still plays the same. It's not like. And that's very progressive, especially considering we're talking about a movie that's from, like, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? It goes back to just Eddie Murphy not being just, like, the funny guy. He's not the funny black guy, or he's not, like, the funny or, or the, the black guy that's, like, really good with the guns or whatever. He's just, like, another character here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's uh, what would you call, like, colorblind casting, which yeah. I really – it surprised me. I really thought that they were going to play up the, the race card a lot more throughout the movie, and that was that was great. So when he – is laughing at, at Nick Nolte being beaten. He's just laughing because Nick Nolte is an asshole. He's not laughing because Nick Nolte is white. Mm-hmm. And then when he saves him, you know, he's not saving because he's he's some like noble black guy. He's just saving because you know it's time. And yeah, you know the the, the moments here I've spoken of like racial triumph. Those are things you really you know you have to know what you're watching to read through the lines, read between the lines. Excuse me. Uh, but yeah, it's not blatant, you know. Right. Not- I mean, we see it because we are bringing our own baggage to the movie. But the movie itself, it's just pretty happy with just these two guys that have some some issues, but the issues have nothing to do with race. Their issues have to do with the fact that one is an abusive, alcoholic asshole, and the other one is this poor guy that probably turned to a life of crime because he wanted somebody to love him. Unfortunately, the person that paid attention to him is Nick Nolte. They leave the club, and at this point, uh, Jack just decks Reggie in the face and claiming that he's even for the basketball <laughs> to the face earlier. And that that goes into what you're saying. These aren't like two, you know, at ends. You know, oh, this is the wacky black guy and the old white man. They're just buddies that you know. Fuck you. We got to be even if we're going to get any further in this life. So we get a brief tease of Reggie. He's going to go off and do his own thing. But then they both end up at the same whorehouse tracking down the bikers. Yeah, I think that it just shows you that he can't quit him. Because I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that he tries to play it off as a coincidence. But really what happens is... uh, Is this... There's a point in the movie where uh, we have like a little montage of, uh, of Eddie Murphy just calling a bunch of people. And getting rejected by every single like he's he's trying to get like a way out yeah. right he's like trying to get a loan or whatever and then he keeps getting shut down and uh, and then ultimately at some point Nolte is like why are you still here I thought you were leaving and he's like no no I'm gonna stick around because you know nobody else will take him that's why like it's such a sad story and and you know I think that happens early in the movie but it wouldn't surprise me if like it happened again here you know after the bar Murphy's like I'm done with this I'm done with this and then well he knows where Nolte's gonna go so it's like you know. The, 
you break up with this person that's that's really bad for you, yeah. but then you kind of like drive by their you know house. Just to, I, yeah. I just happen to be like driving this way. And a lesser movie would actually go into detail of explaining exactly why they both end up at the same place, but this one you just get it. You just know it's like he can't quit him. So they end up at this uh, whorehouse, like I said, and uh, looks like little China and. Uh, one of the bikers is there being serviced by one of the ladies. Basically, it just leads to a big shootout. Nothing. No one gets shot. There's just a lot of bullets fired, and it's kind of like the uh, the appetizer, so to speak, the the, the mozzarella sticks of the film. It, but very well set up because, uh, like I mentioned before, this is a very trigger-happy movie where people just have absolutely no problem pulling the guns and shooting right away. Uh, and that's what happens here. I mean, I, I, I almost I thought that I saw Nolte get shot again. <laughs> Which, and at this point, I'm like, I don't care if he's wearing Kevlar or not. I just take it because it's it's Nolte, <laughs> and he, it's been established in this movie. He's just unstoppable. I mean, he doesn't even he's not even supposed to be carrying a gun right now because he's suspended. But after the bar fight, he goes and opens a trunk and grabs like a, a gun that he had there. <laughs> it's like, oh, I should have been carrying this all the time. And that's the thing when the cops get called about this. The the DA or the police chief, whoever's prosecuting um, Kate's character, says, which gun was he firing? So they arrest the prostitute that was having sex with one of the bikers, and she rats out that this gentleman named Price is the leader of the bikers, the one who hired him to take out uh, Reggie. And uh, at this point... So Price was... Paul the... Giamatti. Oh, Price is Paul Giamatti? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. And so... Not really Paul Giamatti. No. <laughs> they would have been Paul Giamatti if this movie had been a blockbuster. Of his age. Yeah. So Reggie and Jack visit Reggie's old prison. They visit a gentleman by the name of Kirkland Smith, who was paid to protect Reggie on the inside. Uh, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know if he's paid, but he was Eventually definitely he was the person... Paid. Yeah. He was definitely the person who kept him alive. But he's an older gentleman who definitely has his ear to the ground and... Um, they have that mugshot of the Weasley associate of the Iceman. Find out his name is Burroughs. And basically, he just I guess he's just the mouthpiece and the, the pencil pusher for the Iceman. Right. Uh, this this older gentleman, uh, he, I, I'm going to say, like, there would have been Morgan Freeman if this movie had, like, taken off. No, dude, if we're being real, that guy was Courtney B. Vance. <laughs> uh, he definitely had a Samuel L. Jackson and a Black Snake Moan vibe to him. Like the things that could have happened to this guy's career if like if America had been a little more receptive to the sequel. But we have at least six megastars that could have been if this film, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like Walter Hill was like farming them. Uh, But the this is like one of those like rare moments when race actually comes into play Mm -hmm. because uh, Eddie Murphy and it's it's a joke, which is good when Eddie Murphy kind of tells him like Nolte tries to get in on the conversation. And then the other guy, the convict, makes it pretty clear that he only wants to talk to Murphy. Mm-hmm. And then Murphy turns to Nolte and he's like, okay, you leave us alone? Cause it's a black thing. We have to talk about black things or something. And that's that works. That's because it's funny. Mm-hmm. But it also acknowledges that, okay, the movie does know that there are some things that are, you know... You, it's it's not they're not... The movie's not set in this fantasy world where there aren't any black and white differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happens to have characters that have more important things to do than bicker about race. But I, I like that they actually, you know, used it for a joke in that moment. So uh, the aforementioned Price, the head biker, the Iceman shows up to his apartment, I guess, to talk over some antics and just shoots him down. <laughs> but we don't see who the Iceman is we because the movie is still keeping it secret from us. 
uh, you just you just see this shot that's from like just shoulders down, I think, and then you just hear the gunshot. And obviously, the bikers, you know, Bebop and Rocksteady are very upset by this, so they go to Burroughs, the the mouthpiece, the several several times aforementioned Weasley, you know, uh, associate. They shoot his ear off first because they want some information about this, and he explains to him that uh, Reggie's heading to Kirkland Smith's daughter. This is a lot of plot in one. Like he describes a lot of the upcoming story in one sentence. It feels like a lot of plot when you talk about it. When you're watching the movie, you're just like, "All right, next scene, take me. I'm I'm with you. I will have fun." But he knows that Reggie's going to deliver cash to Kirkland Smith's daughter, who works at a Goodwill in the barrio somewhere. And so after they get the information, they say thank you, and it looks like a fucking grenade launcher he shoots him in the head with. <laughs> Well, you know, as the movie goes on, they upgrade their weapons. <laughs> <laughs> They're not in a dusty, desolate bar anymore. They're in the city now. Right. So Reggie takes the money to Kirkland Smith's daughter, a uh, big satchel full of cash, gives it to her, says, you know, this your dad did some things for me when I was on the inside. He wanted me to give this to you. They have a little cute back and forth about how is he. You need to go visit him. And then these bikers come up and they kidnap both of them, correct? Yeah, they do. And, you know, if uh, if the bikers hadn't shown up, that would have looked like a totally altruistic move on Eddie Murphy's part. It just, it paints him, it paints him as someone of, like, solid character, even though he's doing this purely for services rendered. It just, it makes him, you know, look like a stand-up guy. Right, he could have just taken off with the money. But instead, he, he goes and he pays his debts. Uh, okay, so he's getting, now I have to think back, because he's getting kidnapped right now, and that's... That's basically the third act of the movie, right? At this yeah. point, we only have about ten minutes in the film. Yeah, left. there's like okay, that, that's then, like act two point. It's like okay, then, then we miss like the awesome scene where like you know you're talking about like the multiple red herrings in this movie about the identity of the Iceman. There's a moment where Eddie Murphy figures out that the Iceman is a cop, uh, because oh, it's right after they killed the mouthpiece because you know they knew where he was gonna be, and Nolte tells the cops, and then the Iceman shows up first and kills that guy. So then, oh, yeah. so then Murphy's like, dude, it's a cop. You're an idiot. How can you not have figured this out, you know, by now? And then we got one of our favorite lines of the film where he's like, well, come on, we got to hurry. We got to get to my trial. It started two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Nolte figures out or he assumes. He thinks it's like the, the police chief or the DA. I can't right. remember who that character is. Oh, it's but... the internal affairs guy. That's right. Mm. He, he, God damn it. That's the Iceman. And... <laughs> yeah. The guy that's been like riding his ass the entire movie. Yeah. He's like, oh, that's why. Because he didn't want me to find out who he was. And then they show up, and the entire time I'm thinking, like, man, we live in an awesome age. It's not the first time it's happened with these movies. Uh, I think Black Sheep was the last, the most recent time where I'm like, dude, if you'd had an iPhone, because you know the, the the big thing is that Eddie Murphy knows he's seen the Iceman, but he doesn't know who the Iceman is. You know what I mean? Like, the fucking reindeer games, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nolte needs to put him in front of a cop to. To just like so that Murphy can be like, oh yeah, that guy's the Iceman. That should be way more, you know, way easier than the way it is in the movie, where he has to drive him to trial. Where like a guy is like, if you had an iPhone, you just pull that guy's like Facebook page, and you're like, that's his profile. Oh yeah, that's the Iceman. You need to like go around town, or you would even like, you would think they would have some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, like a profile of of all the cops there, so that Murphy doesn't have to 
just drive around the city looking at every cop in the eye until he finds the right one, right? But but it's then I have to remind myself that oh yeah, this movie's like set in like the eighties, the nineties, you know, before before life was sweet the way it is right now. <laughs> so now even though he knows it's a cop, it's like, well, who knows which cop? And then of course they go and they finger but, the you know, wrong it's one. It's like that thing of, you know, yeah, that's perfect and good, but then if that was the case, we wouldn't have this great movie. Like, yeah, I, um, I agree. It was just, it just made me appreciate life. What and, was that WWE film a few years ago with Halle Berry? Uh, the Call. The Call. You know, in a traditional world, you would have, like, Trace My Phone on your phone. But then we wouldn't have this great movie. I, I agree. I agree. But oh, yeah, it, they, they do the Simpsons trick of, like, uh, pouring, pouring the paint to leave a trail. <laughs> Follow the yellow drip road. So basically, it just becomes all-out chaos at this point after they kidnapped uh, Smith's daughter and Reggie. Um, and you know, Kate's is back at the office trying to figure some shit out, and they finally get the results back because he sent away, you know, days ago for, or uh, he sent away at least a day ago for that Burroughs mugshot, that the composite one that he had to be run. And uh, you keep having to remind yourself that this is only forty-eight hours that we're dealing with here, <laughs> right? But even then, at some point where they're having the argument, and Eddie Murphy is like, you know, how long does that take? It's like hours. Hours. <laughs> Well, we it's only have 40 hours. hours. <laughs> Longer if the system's slow. Yeah. <laughs> so this mugshot for Burroughs that they weren't able to get anything back on, it turns out that he was someone that was apprehended by uh, Officer Cruz, who's been like the biggest prick the entire film, trying to get, um, I don't even say fingered at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, because I, I, I turned to you and I asked, did he really say? <laughs> <laughs> but he's been, you know, kind of the roadblock and delaying, and I, it, it becomes clear he was the one that, kick the gun aside at the crime scene to make sure that uh, Cates was incriminated. So we're led to believe at this point because then it cuts to Cruz having a conversation with the bikers on the phone. They said they want 500000 because, you know, killing Price wasn't part of the deal. So we think it's the Iceman. We think Cruz is the Iceman. At this but point. it turns out Cruz was just... just I'm telling you, I, I, it's I, reindeer I, games. It's like, it <laughs> take you down five different roads. Cruz was just the fall guy. Yeah, I, I kind of I hated myself for like falling for the you know like I, th- I, I fell for it too. Well, yeah, and and that's like a good movie. Yeah, we are experienced movie watchers, and yet a movie from the early '90s, late '80s completely tricked us into thinking that this guy was the Iceman. Well, you yeah. know, to be fair, Paul Blart got us too, and you, you know how many swerves <laughs> well, in that yeah. fucking movie. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, but yeah, because I don't know if you heard me, but when the, the guy picks up the phone and you hear the biker's voice, I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's all coming together. So, you know, as someone, I've seen a few Walter Hill films, but Curtis, you being the resident expert, does he always specialize here in the, the finale is always kind of chaotic. There's always the, the big last shootout and the, the scene of just kind of everything coming together in the most violent way possible. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fair statement. And in all honesty, you know, I was going to save this for a little later, but just the the way that everybody is blown back by uh by gunshots in this movie and all all of that general chaos, it it almost feels like he's building towards like a crescendo which he, you know, he achieves a few years later when uh when he makes his Wild Bill movie. <laughs> And also, because like another Wild forty-eight Bill, years, Wild Bill shoots everything that moves. It's all like that's his answer for everything. If the wind changes, somebody's going to get shot. And then, of course, uh, he he remade uh, Fistful of Dollars as mm-hmm. Last Man Standing, and that is nothing if not people getting shot to great excess and flying out windows as they do. Yeah, it's it's total chaos. That's a that's his thing. 
his uh, modus operandi. Uh, so we do get to this nightclub here, this the finale scene where the bikers have Reggie, they have uh, Kirkland Smith's daughter, and, you know, we think the Iceman Cruise is about to roll up here, and, you know, Eddie Murphy, very matter-of-factly, says, that's not the Iceman. That's the Iceman. <laughs> and then and, from behind a wall or, yeah. like, a curtain or something. Brian James, who plays Ben Kehoe, who's been kind of like, in the first saw, the jigsaw character, who's like, <laughs> like just you, kind of there, so that so that you can't say that they cheated. Yes, exactly. You know, it's like he was there. Oh, but one of he the also things, he like lended some support throughout the movie. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things. He he's not like the guy who showed up out of nowhere. At least not to me, because he's because you've seen the first one. Because he's in the first film, but he's also not being overly helpful. He's not being incompetent. He's just being like. A regular cop who's part of the squad. But see, I can appreciate that so well. because it, it, in the real world, you know, if the Iceman would not give himself away. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, that's why it's, it's really cool that this guy, yeah, of course we had no idea because he's a criminal mastermind. So, of course, if, if Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy didn't figure out till just then, we wouldn't figure it out. So exactly. I appreciate the movie playing fair in that, in that sense. Yeah, and then just fucking someone popped the court because it's all out <laughs> chaos from this point. There's gunfire left and right. There's just in my notes here. I put shootout at the clubs. Eventually, in the end, what happens is one of the bikers is shot by Cates. The other one is knocked out of a fourth story window by Eddie Murphy. And then you know the finale, like you said, lent itself to in many ways as equal of a film years later with uh, Live Free or Die Hard. Like I said before, I appreciate the lack of quips in this movie. Uh, Die Hard is a different beast, so I guess they need their one-liners. But here, there is no, there's nothing funny about what's going on. So the guy, the Iceman, has uh, Eddie Murphy hostage. Like he, he's holding him, using him as a as a shield against Nick Nolte, and then Nolte just shoots Murphy so that he stops being useful as a shield. And there's nothing funny about this. <laughs> There's no Yipikaye. He there's shoots it. him too, and like blood starts jettisoning out of his shoulder, <laughs> right. and he looks at him like you motherfucker. And and you're like, well, of course he would do that because it's Nick Nolte, and he's insane. The movie has proven without a shadow of Which doubt. Which is that- genius. At no point in this film have they ever portrayed uh, Jack Cates as a sympathetic, you know, level-headed character. It's right. brilliant. He's not a cop that you would want around. You kind of, I guess, you need him. He's like like uh, Jack Nicholson, a few good men. Like you want him on that wall, like you you need him on that wall, but you don't want to have dinner with him, and you don't want him like really like walking around like doing the beat and on your street. A, he's a fucking brute too. That's the thing. He's not goddamn James McAvoy and wanted. He can't curve bullets, <laughs> right. so you know it, it's he's gonna do what he has to do to get the job done. Yeah, and unlike the the uh, what happens in uh, Live Free or Die Hard, where the bullet goes through Bruce Willis, here it doesn't. It just hits. Uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, and then the Iceman is just so blown away by the fact that Nick Nolte would do he this. Freezes in his tracks, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and then he gets shot on his own. Yeah, then Nolte. And again, you know, it, it paved the way for Live Free or Die Hard. It's, right. I'm I'm not sure that that whole thing tracks with the Iceman being so taken aback at that action. He's known Jack for years. They're both <laughs> cops, so I, I don't I don't know that that tracks, but. You know, we'll, I guess we'll figure it out next week. But it, it is it is something that, that causes one to raise their eyebrows. Yeah, I, I think that maybe... Yeah, we'll have to talk about it after we watch 48 Hours. But at this point, for somebody like me that came fresh, I'm like, oh, 
he was surprised. Yeah, exactly. and maybe what happened? One of the reasons this movie bombed is because a lot of people like like you, Brandon, they, you they just didn't buy that last beat. They're like, "Fuck that!" He was they were buddies since forty eight hours ago. So it was a, it was a ballsy finish, you know. It, it was uh, Walter Hill knew what he was booking. Um, so you know, Reggie's getting carted off on the stretcher. They're doing the whole nine yards on that one, and. Uh, Nolte pulls him in kind of close and says, I found this on the Iceman. And he's got a big... Uh, he, he basically just needed a canvas bag with a dollar sign on it. Yes. Uh, Murphy can't go. He's trapped. He's he's on a gurney. He's been shot. There's nowhere to go. And, and Nolte is just hovering over him. And he has his face really close to him and just telling him, don't worry. Don't worry. We have this money for us now. Everything is going to be okay. <laughs> it's just so creepy and uh, just... The idea that this guy, he can't escape him. It, he, yeah, it's he, very much an I promise I can change moment. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be okay. Now that we have the money, it's going to be okay. And you just know he's going to go back to beating him as soon as uh, they come back. When when he gets out of the hospital, he's going to, like, somehow he's going to withhold the money from him again. Be like, no, 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 because first you have to do this other thing for me. It's, uh, yeah, it's very disturbing. But I, I believe the movie and the filmmaker, they intended to be the case mm-hmm. and maybe the fact that it just went over people's heads it just explains why it it it's it has such a low score and you know the the last kind of haha is that um nick nolte pulls a smoke out to light up as the the bus boys boys are back in town started playing and you know he's looking for his lighter on him he can't find it anywhere cut back to the inside of the ambulance and uh, reggie has the zippo lighter and he's sparking it up and you know it's kind of a funny haha thing, but it's also kind of adds to that Reggie cares about him. He he knows he doesn't need to be smoking anymore, and uh, you you kind of feel bad for Reggie because you know what, you know he's what getting fate a beating ahead of him. <laughs> he's getting a beating for taking that. Uh, and I mean, it's also just like they're made for each other. They need each other. It's I don't know that this relationship is necessarily parasitic, but you know, I mean, it's definitely symbiotic. Yeah, I mean, I I can see the there, there are times. Yeah, there are times when I I just look at couples and I just don't get it. But then I have to remind myself that well, I'm not with them twenty four seven. I'm just catching this glimpse, this snapshot of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, sometimes what looks like a a really toxic relationship to us from outside turns out to be better than anything we've ever had on the inside. So who knows? Maybe that's just. Maybe Eddie Murphy really gets a kick out of being abused by Nick Nolte. How? How? Who are we to judge? I don't know. But there is this other line. Uh, it happens at some point in the movie where um, I think it's when they're talking, they're interrogating the the prostitute that was sleeping with one of the bikers. Who I guess he's like a regular customer or kind of like her sort of boyfriend. And uh, Eddie Murphy says, "I understand how a girl can be in love with a guy like that." And I'm like, "Of course you do, because that's you and Nick Nolte." That's just. <laughs> I no, I did not expect that to get that from the movie. I just expected a solid action movie, and it turned out to be very much about the plea of somebody who's trapped in a relationship that hurts them. Being that you know, I was able to deduce the story of the first one just by watching this great movie. You know, I'm not overly optimistic that the original is going to be able to top what we've saw tonight. Right. I am I am intrigued because it's going to be like like a prequel, right? You go and you watch episode 1 how how he became Darth Vader and now here we're going to we're going to see how they met. How did this how this 
became what we see now how was he was eddie murphy full of like confidence was there a time i really i'm really hoping to see meet an eddie murphy in the first 48 hours that was a guy that would never have he wouldn't have allowed anybody to treat him the way that dignity does and then by the end of 48 hours it's like this tragedy where like this poor man is going to prison and he's broken and he's gonna belong to this brute forever are we ready for real talk yes real talk all right. First a beer. All right. Knock this shit off. I have been having a very bad day. Just got out of jail this morning. Already I have been shot at. I was on the bus that flipped over 17 times. Bitch tried to stab me in the bathroom. And somebody blew up my Porsche. I am in a bad goddamn mood. Now, I usually don't jump in when somebody's getting beat down, but this man, Jack Cage, is going to help me straighten out the rest of my day. Now, I suggest you all back up and let us go about our business. Because you got a gun? No, because I have a gun and I'll pop a cap in your ass. I don't think you've got the guts to use it. Anybody else want to live? All right. Another 48 Hours was directed by Walter Hill, as we mentioned, released on June 8th, 1990, at a budget of $38 million, roughly, for a box office of upwards $154 million. Stands at a meager 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie is not good. Uh, yeah, I mean, well... Let's start off with uh, two people, just two people, <laughs> that didn't think it was that bad. Uh, Chuck O'Leary from Fantastica Daily says, Tough, taut direction by action auteur Walter Hill makes this a much better sequel than its reputation. And then Clint Morris from Movie Hole says, On its own, it's entertaining. As a sequel, it disappoints. So... Uh, at least Movie Hole seems to agree with what we were saying in the first part of the show, which was like, hey, take it as, as, as its own movie and it's good. Uh, I don't think I agree with him, but uh, no. I guess there are three people that like this movie. These two guys and then Brandon Curtis. <laughs> yeah. All right. So <laughs> give us a quick summation of your feelings. How do you like this movie? Let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, first of all, um, the very first time I saw this movie was back in 2009, and I just come up with uh, with a script idea that I really won't let die. And it's about a it's about a couple of private detectives who, you know, they follow the la- the dying words of a man, which is which is just a name, much like uh, Nick Nolte's character only Ice has the name Man. Iceman. Yeah, it's just a name that they chase. And you you don't know what the implications are, and it sort of spirals out from there. And uh, I came up with the idea shortly before I saw um, Forty Eight Hours, another Forty Eight Hours, and so I've I've always had like a fondness for it for that reason. And then of course I also, you know, as we said off air, there's the the diner scene. I actually, you know, in the past I've written diner scenes that are marred by violence. So that's that's another little scene that speaks to me. It's just, you know, there are writerly parts of me that this movie gets. That's and, fair. Um, 
No, it's not fair. <laughs> no, it's fair enough for him to, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, Empire Records is a good movie, so I can't justify it because, like, the way I like Empire Records is the way he Right, because it. it's not like you like it despite knowing that it's not good. You like it and you think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. It, it, yeah, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> there is. I mean, look, I don't think it's horrible. And it's I, a it, series of, like, eight-minute segments cut together that have no... Correlation to one another. I mean, they do, but they don't. You know, there's like, a, a, there's a way that it, need, it didn't need to be another 48 hours. It could have been like another five hours. You know what I mean? Like, it could have, like, this whole thing could have happened like much faster. How long does it take? <laughs> hours. <laughs> <laughs> or for that matter, maybe it could have been like another like five weeks and then, you know, you expand it and make it so it, like, some things don't happen. Like, they're not too silly. But that's not really my problem with it. My problem with it is just that, that, it felt like the kind of movie that we don't make anymore for a reason. Uh, you know, they, a lot of it just felt dated. And I I can understand that some of it is just because, well, it can't help itself. You know, there's there's some things that look really clunky uh, as far as, like, the procedure goes because that's just the way things were back then. But but then there are others that it just feels like like the, the need to have, like, an action scene every, like, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. It just... So, so like... Um... I told Julio and Curtis before we recorded the Real Talk portion, we're going to save comparisons and kind of like that kind of stuff until we watch 48 Hours. But it is so weird that this was eight years after the fact and it's so bad. This feels like a next year recycled film. Yeah, it, it feels like what you would call uh, like the equivalent of a direct video sequel from Disney. Or like what? a Friday the 13th like slasher type sequel that's just immediately re- reduplicated. And like, yeah, and I, wa- I, I want to think that I'm not being extra harsh on it just because it's a sequel uh but i mean if i saw this by itself not like if if 48 hours didn't exist and this was you know 48 hours which this movie could because there's really not much that bleeds over right but i I would be very disappointed i would be like come on nick nolte and eddie murphy couldn't you do anything better because they're good but there, I, I found myself having more fun with just like what I could bring to the movie, yeah. just that, you know, reading like under abusive relationship than what the movie was really doing for me. It's like a very standard, you know, crime movie. Like the, it's, it does me some, it's kind of heartwarming to know that even in 1990, Nick Nolte was already a parody of himself. Hours. <laughs> <laughs> if you had. <laughs> If you had different actors playing it, maybe it'd maybe be like more Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum, um, Josh Gad and uh, Nick, so Nick Cannon. I was disappointed. I was waiting for you to do the Josh Gad thing in the beginning, where like you could have said Eddie Murphy could have been Josh Gad. Uh, oh um, man, I didn't even think about that because I was saving Josh Gad for now. I know. Um, I I just it just feels very generic uh, for all the jokes that we made in the previous uh, previous uh, half of you know part of the podcast. I don't really. It didn't really feel like it was doing anything that was unexpected, um, dude. That opening is so fucking long. But you like the the opening? Yeah, I like the opening. It reminds me of a uh, of a spaghetti western because they're they're out in the desert. You have basically these three gunslingers that come into town, and the guy who runs the bar is like the man in Once Upon a Time in the West who who lives who lives out in the shack by the train tracks. And when the train rolls by, it shakes it shakes all the dust off the shelf and onto him. And he wakes up and he's like, "What the flibber gibbet was that?" You know, he's <laughs> that 
that bartender is that guy, and it just it very much paints it in a spaghetti western mold. And then, do you think the movie follows that mold? Um, yeah, like I was saying earlier, um, which I I sort of mentioned a little too early, but the violence is very uh, over the top in a spaghetti western fashion. And like I say, I think there is you know this is like a phase in Walter Hill's career where he is building towards the crescendo of the spaghetti western. Because you have his legit Western, Wild Bill, like within the next five years. And that's full of all kinds of excessive gun violence. And, you know, people flying all over the place. And, uh, you know, and then you have the following year, you have uh, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. And that's uh, that's also full. Also, yeah, it's not, (laughs) not good. But you see, you know, you see this like through line. Like Walter Hill is building towards that. And you know, exploring that spaghetti western phase of his career, and it's it starts here. Yeah, but I don't think maybe if if the if there was more follow up on that on those aesthetic decisions and that that feeling that you have in the opening, then maybe I could see it as like okay, I, I get it because uh, because then it would pay off. But as it is, I can see what you're saying as part of those original like five minutes, seven minutes, and then it doesn't really go anywhere other than the violence. It's not like the entire movie is structured to be uh, uh, some sort of Western that happens in the city. It, it, it feels like a lot of it feels just like a procedural that you would watch on TV, like, you know, on CBS or whatever. And that's that's the part that just kind of, I think, lets down the 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 cast that they have and, and the original idea. If you're going to have these guys like be together for another 48 hours... Or again, even if this was the first movie and it was called Forty Eight Hours, I would think that there would be something more special than than what they're chasing here, which is just some some guy that's you know has possibly some, real. Yeah, the, 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 even if you take Nolte at face value and you say, okay, he's not crazy, he, there is a nice man. There is, uh, I don't know. I think that okay, the idea of a nice man, maybe that was not the best idea for a movie that's supposed to take place over two days. If you're talking about a big conspiracy and whatever, then maybe that's that's like Mission Impossible kind of stuff that needs to take place over a lot of time. And what you have here is just Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy kind of driving around and visiting different locations and getting some sort of information by bits and pieces and having some banter. But there's nothing really memorable about it. It's not God a bad... damn it, that's the Iceman. <laughs> right, I mean, it's not a movie that I hated. It, 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 I just, I watched it and I was... Despite my lack of uh, laughing out loud <laughs> whenever you guys did, I was still I was not having a bad time. I was like smiling and thinking, "Oh, these guys are are funny." But uh, it's something we'll talk about more when we talk about Forty Eight Hours. It is interesting how it took them nearly a decade to come out with a sequel because it feels as lazy as a film they would have written the day after the first one. Right. It 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 just feels like if there wasn't if not for the fact that they these two guys already starred in a bigger movie that was really successful, you wouldn't have gotten this thing made. Well and Be- also in many ways Eddie Murphy's star power was done at this point, so this could have been like an attempt a, a reprieve, so to speak. It's like uh what like it feels like there's a sequel that's come out like recently that was like a really late sequel. Well, Zoolander 2, or even Anchorman 2, uh, yeah. last year. Yeah. Scream 4, you know, we've covered that, but it was a 10-year gap between the third and the fourth one, right? Oh, they have a TV show now, so maybe yeah. we're, we're due for 48 hours of TV show. And Jesus. Josh Gad and Nick Cannon, I'm telling you. That's like... <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, 
I should have interjected with this sooner. But another thing that that adds to the western the western feel for it for it. It's it's obviously it's going to do nothing to change your minds, but it's another thing. When the gunslingers first also one of their first impressions that they make other than trying to assassinate Jack and Reggie is when they meet the they meet the woman that they inter- that uh <clears throat> that Jack and Reggie interrogate later at Barnstormers. And, uh, you know, they, they keep talking about whore this and whore that. And they hold the gun to her. It, it's it's very much two dudes busting into a whorehouse looking for a woman. Like, that's that's another sort of westerny trope. Like, it immediately made me think of uh, Unforgiven and all of the horrible things they do to the prostitute at the beginning. This, this movie made you think of Unforgiven. <laughs> wow. Well, but, but, but you do like it. So I guess that explains... If you, I, I do not see it on that level at all. I, to me, it just felt uh, kind of like phoned in. Uh, it, whenever there was a scene, like let's say like the whorehouse scene, to me it didn't feel like, oh yeah, we have this Western thing. It felt like, oh yeah, well it's time for the whorehouse scene. You know, we need to like take him to another place where where you know violent things are gonna happen. Uh, and they have they have their moments. Uh, Murphy, this is the whorehouse, right? When uh, Murphy tells him. That he's the one that needs to go up there because Nolte is the one that has the gun. Yeah, and, uh, what am I going to do? The biker show up, make him make a mad face at him. Yeah, but there is there is nothing to. Maybe it's because I'm not as big into the Western genres as you know you are. But to me, the bikers are pretty interchangeable and pretty just one note characters, and they're there for a lot of the movies. So to me, other than like pulling out their guns and shooting, there's really not that much to them. Uh, and then. Even though that's really their primary purpose, in the end, they're not that big of a threat. You know, they're not like great sharpshooters. Like you mentioned, like that guy shoots Nick Nolte like twenty times and he doesn't hit him once. Uh, and Nick Nolte just keeps re- reloading his revolver and just firing <laughs> upward in no general direction. Right. It's not even like they're these unstoppable forces of evil that okay, may, they may not have uh, personalities, but they are just this big threat. No, they're just like bikers and they have guns and they shoot people, but there's not, but they can be stopped rather easily once you get in the same room with them. Uh, and, and then of course the reveal of the Iceman is kind of a, meh. I mean, it's, it's not a cheap. If it had been Eddie Murphy, that would have been some real shit. Right. Or, or, <laughs> or maybe how amazing would have been if it really, there was no Iceman. You get to the end, and it's like, yeah, there was some crime going on, but there's no Iceman. Nick Nolte's crazy. Or maybe he's not even crazy, but he just, he fucked up. He followed the wrong lead. He believed the wrong person. And... It's like the, at the end of the book of Eli. <laughs> it's impossible. Yes. Uh, there's also it's a very bad movie, by the way. No, fuck you. That's <laughs> Book, of, Book Eli. of Eli. is very bad. Brandon Curtis, you're the tiebreaker here. How do you feel about Book of Eli? I think it's pretty good. Ah, well, then you know we've automatically it's it's good, man. Mila Kunis is the only thing that's wrong with that movie because she's too pretty and too like cleaned up to the be in that world. The only thing right with that movie is Tom Waits as like the pawn shop man. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ugh. But see, that has more of a Western feel than. Oh yeah. Look, look at like just now. Like oh, I had like oh, wait, images wait, wait. in my head. I forgot of... to tell you. I forgot to tell you. I forgot to play my trump card. Motorcycles, cars, they're motorized horses. <laughs> so fuck you. <laughs> On a steel horse, they ride. They're one. Uh, Dead or alive. 
<laughs> there is uh, the movie also drops. Dude, what... I'm fucking dying over here trying to remember what that fucking sequel is that like came out way <laughs> after. Uh, the movie also drops the most interesting thing it had going for me, which was uh, the investigation uh, about you know Nick Nolte shooting a guy that was they allegedly unarmed, and uh, because to me that was it jumps into it and then it just like brushes it right. You never really even when there are consequences and he gets suspended, it doesn't stop him. It doesn't do anything, you know, to the to the story. He doesn't even lose a gun. You're trying to tell me in America you can just get a gun and open fire on the streets <laughs> these days? But these days, back then, you know, the 80s were the golden age. It was cocaine. It right. wasn't guns. Yeah. Not a single person does cocaine in this movie. What the hell? Well, it was 1990. It was the, the dawning of a new era. Right. Well, the, there should be at least one character that's still clinging to the old ways. I really would have enjoyed exploring, especially if, I'm assuming, the, the first movie sets him up as this loose cannon that's just that you know he's he's on the right side of the law but he's still he he's not somebody pleasant and somebody that is bound to get in trouble sooner or later and then the second movie actually shows him getting in trouble uh that is something that I would have liked to see explored more and that would have made this feel like more of an less of a cookie cutter just you know, action movie and more, and it, and it kind of goes there a couple times. Nick Nolte actually addresses it. He has like the moment where he goes, where he tells him, like I, I quoted in the previous part, when he goes, like, I don't think that cops should be investigating cops. Okay, why? You know, tell me more about this. This is the most interesting thing that he said the entire movie. How do you feel about the fact that you're a cop that, you know, shoots people a lot and that breaks a lot of rules and that is not like a people person? And how do you feel being investigated about that? Even if you're innocent, because you know we know that he's innocent. We know that he he almost got shot. But with these movies that we do, where it's like, oh, you know, oh, we pretend like it, but then shit on it in the second half. We find ourselves so many times doing it. Like that's the interesting movie, like, right? We find right, because you're looking for the like, good thing, yeah. and, and it's like, okay, that could be interesting. Oh, you know, you know what's the thing about that? When he's like, oh, I don't think cops should be investigating other cops. This is also a time before we had our first uh, – well, I, I'm sure there are other ones. We're, we're not that old. But you know, in my lifetime, the first big anti-police thing to happen was uh, – Rodney King? Yeah, I mean that, you know, that was <laughs> – like, no, Who's Rodney King? <laughs> yeah, he was totally beaten by No, cops. no, I'm sorry. I got confused. I'm, my thing was – I literally – I was thinking of Reginald Denny. <laughs> Which was, you know, the, the white guy that was beaten as, like, a response to that sort of thing. Oh, he was the truck yeah. driver. Yeah, I, was, I had that in my head. But, yeah, Rodney King, that's the first big anti-police thing. And uh, another 48 hours predates that by about two years. So, we're, you know, we're possibly... So they were, like... Where, so, so they were given... So, so, so much... racism didn't exist prior <laughs> no, no, to 1990. No, 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 there's There's not such an anti-police climate, Police, yeah. so... Maybe he would be like, "Oh yeah, maybe this is why you know cops shouldn't investigate other cops." Right, but but so basically, it almost feels like they were given uh, Nick Nolte filler dialogue to just like you know, <laughs> and they happened to stumble upon something that was really interesting, and then they just oh well okay, and they yeah. just moved on. Let's not touch on this again. Is that? And then Eddie Murphy also has like a very interesting moment where he is 
telling Dick Nolte, kind of like blaming him and, and saying that, uh, what, you think that that every criminal just, you know, went to the career counselor and they got thief or thug on their, you know, on the results. And I'm like, okay, let's keep going with this conversation because I really, I'm really interested about what point you're trying to make. Are you saying that society made you a criminal? Are you saying, but no, it's just, it's just filler talk, you know, until the next shootout. And, you know, this is really, unfortunately, it, Freddie Murphy, like, <laughs> you make it sound like like he died then, but no, it's just his career. Well, <laughs> and this was like kind of like the last ditch effort at uh, reprieve, or I guess that would have been Beverly Hills Cop Three was probably the last ditch effort at a revival. I but... mean, he's he's a little sanded down on the edges in that one. Uh, well, I, you know, I I think the first Nutty Professor is funny, like not the Jerry Lewis one, obviously the first uh, Eddie Murphy one. I find the it, real one. Yeah, I find it to be entertaining. <laughs> but I've seen it like three times. I never saw the clumps, but I saw the the Nutty Professor. I saw it in theaters, like I think twice. Yeah, I, it, I, I saw it in theaters twice as well. It's it's fun. People that shit on that movie, it's just like you can't have fun with the movies type thing. We are to blame. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, this was like done as like the last ditch effort prior to Beverly Hills Cop Three about like his career kind of like winding down and stuff in terms of being like an A list celebrity. But, you know, we were commenting on it, you and me, Curtis and uh, Julio, like his delivery, like when he wants to be in it, probably even still, you know, you can't take that away from someone. Delivery is so good. He's so crisp. And like the the best parts of this movie are when he just has these one liners. Like it's just it, it's so frustrating to see what he became. Right. Because you you see well, it, it, even in the context of the movie, it's just frustrating to see him exactly. like, oh, you were funny just like last scene. Why are you not? showing that much charisma or that much you know it's frustrating because the movie's not giving him giving him anything else to do in a very interesting way this is like kind of like an allegory for his entire career it's like you have all this potential but then you just whore it out type thing and um because there are like moments of just absolute brilliance of this even the scene where he's just like there's no audio but he's just singing his james brown tape that's hilarious like you and me were fucking cracking up at it like and i was like who's james brown <laughs> no I, he's not I, from peru I, I, I recognize this song oh, well no i mean he even has that like expository bit of dialogue where where he pieces the plot together and then he's like you gotta be the stupidest motherfucker in law enforcement <laughs> yeah. like that that's incredible like i think i think this is a, a very underrated uh eddie murphy performance in terms of uh in terms of comedy uh, he's a little more intense in in the original, but just you know, from a comedic standpoint, this is a good one. I agree that it's uh, underrated in the sense that he gave a genuine effort when he didn't need to, and like he's trying. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure. I mean, Nolte is trying too. He's he's just. I don't think I wouldn't fault the fact that I didn't like the movie. That has nothing to do with their performances. Uh, it's just the movie is lacking, and there there's not much that they can do about it. I mean, what do you do when you're stuck with like a stock plot and just like a bunch of action scenes, which are shot well. And I enjoy seeing people like flying around every time they got hit by a bullet. And I really enjoyed the jolt of like getting, seeing Nick Nolte shot like six times and not die. And that was, that was cool. But there's, but it's very, they're few and far in between like those kind of moments in the movie for the most part is just kind of like just humdrum. I, I wasn't kidding in the first portion of it, watching this, like as much as I may not have cared for it. Like Eddie Murphy and all that, but watching it was worth it for that moment it built to when Nick Nolte told Eddie Murphy, he's like, 
We gotta get to my trial. They're gonna decide if they're gonna take my badge away and lock me away. It started two hours ago. That's that's brilliant. That Curtis and I lost it during that. Leo just folded his arms. <laughs> I was laughing inside. I smiled. Interesting, it, it, you know, especially someone who's never even seen the original. It makes me very interested to watch that and see. I, I understand the fifteen percent at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Especially if you're assuming that most people watch the original, because if the original is good, and then this is the sequel, then I would be pissed off too. I'll be even. There's that, but this isn't mean spirited. Oh no, no, no! It's it's very well deserving, but I can imagine it hitting you even harder, because like I said, I, we've seen worse, and I've hated movies. You know, I don't hate this. I was just like really just this unimpressed by it too. It's not mean spirited. Oh, oh, you talk about that sequel being sequel mean-spir- was, Okay, yeah. I thought you were talking about that. Like, have to see the first one to know that this isn't mean spirited. Right, yeah, no, I thought you meant that the reviews were, like, the fact that it was like a 15% was because oh, people were yeah. hating on it. Yeah, I think uh, that's too low. I think, you know, it, it is what it is, but it's not Hangover 2, Anchorman 2. It's not in that category of uh, mean spirited. Hey, we'll just make you pay for the same shit. Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll have our talk about Hangover 2 someday. I. I I don't like it much, but I don't think it's it's. It's the exact same fucking movie. But that's it's the that's mean spirited thing. No, 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 no. But that's that's what could have been brilliant about it if it was the exact same movie, and you know, as in like. It would have been brilliant if the third one was the exact right. Same movie. But but that's why I'm kind of I'm sad that it wasn't because if third one was was the exact same good. movie, then you would be huh? Third one's good. No, it's not. We, dude, we just talked about this like two episodes ago. I, know. I think. Curtis, <laughs> do you like the third Hangover movie? I, I think there are moments like uh, where you, you get to see what exactly makes Galifianakis pick, and he has like the heart to heart with the kid. That's that's actually really touching. I I don't think that Hangover Three tries to be. It doesn't try to be they, funnier than the second one. It's not nearly as cynical. It's. <laughs> So it takes away everything that was good about the franchise. It doesn't. It doesn't doesn't care to live in the shadow of either one. It doesn't doesn't want to live up to an expectation of any sort. It can barely. It can barely keep Bradley Cooper awake. Uh, No, that's true. And B Coop in that entire movie, he's wearing sunglasses the entire time because (laughs) he's like, I've fucking got nominated for an Oscar. Let's get this shit over with. And also what I said last time, which actually made you say, oh, yeah, you're right. It sucks. Was that (laughs) at the very end, it's like they run out of things to do. So they give Stu like boobs in the post credit sequence. Yeah, yeah, that's really lame. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do like if if uh, if Hangover 3 had been like another like just go around lower than two. In the in the on Rotten Tomato. Well, yeah, because I I dislike it more than two because I felt that they, they didn't stick to their guns. I'm like, give me the exact same movie again, and they'll be like, they not recognize that this was your plan all along. And I'll be like, okay, now you have balls. But instead, they just did like something that was, I don't even Which know one what can to make do. the argument that three is even more mean spirited than two. It's like fuck you, <laughs> like, you wanna... but it's like fuck you, and we're not even gonna be funny because. You know, if you really wanted to, like, fuck you and break with the formula, then you just have somebody else be kidnapped. Have Bradley Cooper be kidnapped. And then, you know, he doesn't have to be there much. And, uh, you know, and then just just play with the formula a little more. But instead, they kind of, like, they bring Heather Graham back for, like, I don't even remember what. They kill the dad for, like, what, like a cheap joke. It, I just, it just didn't work for uh, me. Oh, dude, they killed Black Doug. They killed Black Doug. Which is your favorite part of the movie. Yeah, that is my favorite. I'm killing, I'm killing Dugs, Dugs today. today. Yeah. Um, uh, but back to another 48 hours. I, hold on. It's, it's not that kind of... I want to pop Curtis with this. There's an outtake for uh, Hangover 3. that I, I own the Blu-ray for it. 
and uh, they're doing like back and forth, and Ed Helms calls Zach Galifianakis is fat, and he says, "Yeah, well, you have horse teeth, Mister Ed Helms." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not forty eight hours. It's it's not that kind of sequel though. I agree. It's not a sequel that's trying to do anything. Like even if it like, just exists. Right. Even if we agree that Hangover Two is some sort of like mean spirited, like we're just gonna give you the same thing, there is like some sort of purpose to that. Whereas like here, I don't understand other than hey, we might make some money out of this. I don't understand why this movie needed to take place, like why it needed to exist. There's it's not saying anything about the world, and it's not giving you anything new as far as like the action genre. The closest that it comes to having a reason to exist is what Brandon said, which is like, well, Walter, Walter Hill was building up to to a, a true western. Well, Although there was supposed to be a third, right? I actually I don't know. I will say, you know, as a counter to the to the world, to you know, there's no reason to explore this world. Well, I mean, there there technically is world building. You have like your classic sibling out on a mission of revenge angle, which is you know, that's Die Hard with a vengeance, you know, raisin de tray, or however you say that French phrase. But it's you know that is you know by its very nature that is a bit of world building. Like, yeah, you but, have a universe that you're kicking around. Yeah, but it's not. But it doesn't. It doesn't get anywhere with it. Like even Die Hard three, there is. There is a fun to it. I mean, it, I mean, obviously it's it's well done. Almost every it's better than not forty hours on every aspect. But I would say if you ask me, okay, what what is Die Hard three? I'm like, oh yeah, that's the one where he gets paired up with Samuel Jackson and they have to like run around the city solving riddles and like there's stuff I can tell you about that movie. If you ask me, so which one? What's not forty eight hours about? What's, it's, what's it's that? Where one? he was late to his trial that started two <laughs> hours ago. I mean, like, oh, that's the one that. They just made after forty eight hours. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you about it that that would really, you know, the one where like there's the bikers and they shoot. It's kind of how I feel about Die Hard Two. Only Die Hard Two is better, but you know, Die Hard Two. I can tell you, that's the one at the airport, and that's about it. Yeah, it, it's. I think some sequels are just they don't really have much reason to exist other than well, the first one was successful, so why not? I am really curious to find out why it took so long to make this one. Uh, yeah, the only thing I have in terms of like trivia is that uh, we were talking about while we were watching this. There's the alleged two and a half hour director's cut of this that you know some people say don't exist, was never released, it's never been. But apparently, like according to folklore, the original cut of this film was two and a half hours, and the story was more well flushed out. But that there's a lot more stuff in the desert. No, like I, people wearing I think cowboy the hats. Scene was actually like the brown bunny. It was a forty-minute scene. Just... I feel like uh, you would have gotten some fleshing out from the moment that they run to the court, or like right before they get to that. Um, I you know, which is basically the moment where Eddie Murphy's like, "Oh no, Iceman's a cop. How could you not see this?" There's got to be some fleshing out in between those story beats because they they all seem to be you know, stumbled upon rather quickly. And so I, I would think that the, the fleshing out comes from there. Uh, because up until then, I actually think that the movie is, is pretty well paced. And uh, there's a certain, there's a certain fluidity to it. You know, they, they play a little, a little loose with time. I know 48 hours is in the time, but it's, it's so well edited that you don't really get a sense for the continuity in terms of, how long is it taking them to get from the point where 
they shoot Jack to the point where they show up at the bus to get Reggie. It plays fast and loose with the time, but it's still, you know, it's very fluid and well-paced, and that's a, that's another thing about the movie that I really appreciate. Okay, I mean, that's um, just... It's whatever, a... whatever seems it allegedly has, or and, you know, whatever's been excised, I think it gets through the brunt of its running time without that being noticed, you know. You you only know that there are things missing because you've been told. So. It keeps it modest at ninety three minutes. Right. It's it's it's. I mean, this sounds very it's dismissive, not long to be but it's right. It, no, I mean, it's this sounds really pretentious on my part, but it's <clears throat> it's competently made, and that by that I mean that yeah, I mean it's like it's well paced, it's well acted, it's it's put together, it's a movie. You know, it's like we we can see we've watched stuff where you just like, well, it doesn't even make sense. How did you get through? You know, there's Plato through a mold too. So, right. I mean, but, but I mean, I don't want to take away from the fact that the, the, I would imagine like, you know, most filmmakers couldn't even give you like a movie that's, you know, decently made you know, I'm not worried when I complain about the movie, I'm not worried about plot holes or, you know, I'm just worried about the fact that there is no reason for it to, to be there. I even not having seen the first 48 hours, I just there is uh, I would imagine I would hope that 48 hours has characters that have a have an arc and they arrive to some sort of, you know, conclusion that makes it worth it. And you're like, yes, this is why I watch this movie. Whereas like this one is just like, oh, I watch this movie because it has characters that I like from a previous movie. And I'm hoping but there is. Tell me, I mean, what did they learn in this movie that they didn't learn in the first 48 hours? Um, the identity of Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, go ahead. No, it was, it, it's, I, I don't have anything to take away from it, anything memorable other than, wow, that was just a movie that we watched. Um and, I mean, maybe, you know, the, his his James Brown performance – Gonna kiss myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, I that's uh, I don't know. I mean, my grade wise, I would give it like one and a half, maybe out of five stars. Yeah. Somewhere well, you, around there. well, you do letters. Give give us a letter. Uh, that was a, uh, that was a C minus or a D. Curtis, oh. how do you rate your movies, dude? Um, I do. Oh well, I guess if we're gonna. If we're gonna go on the zero to four like traditional scale, it's it's a solid three. Three so, from zero to four. Yeah. Okay. And if it's if it's one to five, it's three and a half. Um So that's gonna do it for this episode. <laughs> Unless did you have like some parting thoughts about the movie? No, I think honestly, um who Kate's is as a person, like that that will get that will get explained a little bit better. Like obviously the intervening years have tamed him some, but you'll you'll see like a gruffer person. So I think I think So he he was even more of an asshole in the first one? Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think he's he's tempered a little bit. Um and certainly, you know, before Reggie's back in his life, his his ex girlfriend who you'll meet in the first one, she's been gone for X amount of time. I think that his uh that's evened him out a little, you know. It's also, you know, I would be willing to bet that it's 100% the reason that he stopped drinking. Yeah, I mean, the, I, the, I, flaws, I, the flaws of himself and other men in general, you're, you're gonna you're gonna see them more at play 
I, I called him an alcoholic earlier, and it's like, I, we don't really seem to have a drink. I, I, just, I just assumed. It's Nick Nolte. He must be an alcoholic because he's it's like... a safe he, assumption. Yeah, dude, he's got a whiskey and gravel voice. It can't really be helped. <laughs> God damn it. That's the ice, man. So that was another 48 hours. For the next episode, it'll be 48 hours. Uh, Curtis, you're going to be back to join us, correct? Yes. All right. So for now... Um, we'll let you plug all your shit next time. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can plug shit here right now. Yeah, if you have anything else. Mm, no, I don't really have any anything to plug. Uh, uh, you know, I write I write stuff sometimes. I write movie reviews. Uh, as does Julio. We sometimes write for a website called Bro Jackson. www.brojackson.com All right, Julio. So, um, opening and en- opening and closing themes. Best of years. Um, don't let me use you. It's on iTunes. Yes, our friend Chris team. Lloyd and his band. They rock. And they let us use their music. Chris, Chris Lloyd and the Great Scots. If only. But no. It's, I think he's he's trying to uh, not be associated with Back to the Future at all. <laughs> I, I, I don't blame him. Angels in the outfield? <laughs> all right. So that was another 48 hours. Next time, it'll just be a plain old simple 48 hours. Um, that that's going to do it for us on the Contrans, where we're right and you're wrong. Curtis, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Alrighty, all right. We'll catch y'all next time. That's our of 